Hey, everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network, where we take a closer look each week at the wide, weird, and wonderful world of running. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, our guest is Tony Post, the founder of Topo Athletic, and we talked to Tony about his running background and his extensive work in the footwear industry, including serving as the CEO of Vibram USA, and then in 2013, founding Topo Athletic. Tony and I talk about points of agreement and points of disagreement among today's running shoe manufacturers, We discuss minimalist versus maximalist shoes. We talk about the design philosophy and design process at Topo Athletic and more. I really enjoyed this conversation with Tony, and I think that you will too. So let's go ahead and get right to it. Well, Tony, how are you today and where are you today? So I am working from home, like probably millions of other people today. Um, you know, it is whatever it is, March 31st, uh, 2020. What a strange year 2020 has turned out to be so far. But um, yeah, so I'm home and uh, we're still able to get outside for runs and mountain bike rides and things like that. But, um, but we're following the rules on social distancing, too. Yeah. And home is uh, Newton, Massachusetts. Do I have that right? We're just outside of that area. We're in, I, I'm home for me actually is Southboro, Massachusetts. So it's the town next to Hopkinton, which a lot of people know is the starting point of the Boston Marathon. How does a guy born and raised in Colorado end up in that area? Yeah, so I, um, I, as you said, grew up in Colorado, went to school at University of Tulsa in Oklahoma. When I was at Tulsa, I ran uh, track and cross country on the, on the teams there. And I started kind of late in running. So at the end of my career, I was just starting to bloom. And I wanted to go someplace where I could uh, train with better runners. And at that time, so this would have been the early eighties, there were probably three places you could go. I could go back to Colorado. Boulder was already emerging as a place where a lot of good runners were training and you could go to Oregon, of course, uh, you know, and that this was not long after Prefontaine's death. And a lot of people, you know, in that area were huge track fans. And, and so that was kind of a good area to, to go. And the other place was Boston. And my girlfriend at the time, who's been my wife for the last 30-something years now, uh, she was from the Boston area. So she convinced me to come out here. And it was a great place, um, you know, for a variety of reasons. It had a lot of things that interested me. But part of it was that I thought that it was a, you know, there would be better people to, to train with and run with at that time. So you've been out on the East Coast for how long now? So since the uh, early 1980s, like 81, 82, something like that, um, I've lived in the Boston area the whole time. And um, and it's also, you know, a place where I obviously started my shoe footwear career. And a lot of footwear companies in this area, too. And 
That was something I was interested in. Um, Nike used to have a development facility in Exeter, New Hampshire. I was getting some equipment and, and other you know, small benefits from Nike at the time. So I used to be able to go up to the Exeter, New Hampshire facility where they were doing at the time advanced concepts work, which was really interesting and intriguing to me. And that kind of that's how I got interested in footwear. I didn't end up going to work for Nike, but ended up instead going to work for uh, kind of a small startup company that was that wasn't even a running shoe company. It was a casual shoe company that was using athletic shoe technology in casual shoes. And that, of course, was the Rockport company. Mm-hmm. Yep. And R- Rockport, you know, it was interesting at the time. So this is like, you know, 83, 84. Um, Rockport as a spokesperson had Bill Rogers, who, you know, for anybody living in the Boston area, Bill had won four Boston marathons, four New York marathons. You know, he was a remarkable athlete, really. He would train 140 miles a week, fly all over the country, and was still unbeatable at the marathon for those years. And uh, and so since Bill was a spokesperson for the brand, I guess in my eyes, that kind of, you know, gave it all the credibility it needed. And, and I was able to land a job there. Were you already sort of a gear dork or a shoe dork, right? Who was constantly <laughs> fiddling or wondering about these shoes or were at the, at the time, was it a little bit more like, just give me something to throw on my feet. I just want to get out there and get running. No, I think I was always interested in gear. That's funny. I'd never really thought about that before. So when I was in high school, I worked in a ski shop, hmm. you know, growing up in Colorado, I was a very avid skier and... I wasn't really so much a runner even in those days. Um, You know, I did a lot of other sports, but skiing was something that I really had a passion for. And working in the shop, you know, there was always new equipment, new gear. And and at that time, skiing was changing a lot. And so that's probably where I first developed my interest in that idea. And, And that's why, you know, then going up to visit the Advanced Concepts building in Exeter for Nike and kind of, you know, seeing how for the first time they were using force plates and high speed film and, you know, this kind of what at the time was, you know, really revolutionary technology to create and design footwear. That was, that was interesting to me. And then the other part of that story though, that's equally as interesting is Rockport had all of these like 50, 60, 70 year old shoemakers, old school New England shoemakers that spent time, you know, really crafting lasts and focused on different types of constructions and how materials work together and how constructions work together. And so you learned a different level of detail that I didn't realize how important that was. And I think anybody who's worked in, you know, we call it the brown shoe industry, who's worked in that industry and also worked in athletic shoes, you have a real appreciation for all the craftsmanship that goes into that kind of footwear. And so even today with Topo, I've tried to bring not just, you know, traditional athletic concepts where you're talking about your midsole foams or different, you know, technologies that people may integrate, but talking about also the craftsmanship that goes into fit and feel and and some of the things that are so important to the experience, I think that often get overlooked. It's really interesting to hear you say that because 
thinking about this this week, you know, in advance of this conversation, I found myself thinking about, in particular, like indie ski companies. There is often a kind of story attached to these, you know, smaller independent companies about the the craftsmanship and artisanship that goes into these products. And I was like, I don't recall ever hearing anybody talk about this in terms of, you know, active athletic shoe companies. But it sounds like you would um you would want to uh correct us on that if if we're overlooking the notion that this is one of the areas like a good independent ski manufacturer, you know, you guys are involved in your own kind of minute level of care and attention as well. I think that's true. I mean, I th- I'm not sure if it's true of every single brand, but it definitely had an influence on me. So I feel like in the running shoe industry, there's so much conversation about, you know, lately that a lot of the conversation you see, we all see is, you know, people putting carbon plates and mixing it with different types of um, PBAX foams or, you know, alternatives to EVA and things like that, which all those things are really interesting and really important. You don't hear a lot of people talking about the craftsmanship of a last, about how you, you know, a lot of lasts, for example, are built on a flat bottom. Most people don't have a foot with a flat bottom. And so how you craft the last shape is going to dictate how that shoe fits and feels. And, and that's a, you know, equally important part of the experience, because when you have a product that fits you right, just like in cycling. Um, you know, when you have a, a bike that fits you just right, sometimes that is more meaningful than saving an extra, you know, 200 grams or, you know, it, it, it's so central to the experience. And I think footwear, especially performance footwear, running footwear is, is similar in that way. And ultimately, if you can do both things, you know, if you can, if you can, deliver some technology that is meaningful to the experience at the same time that you deliver craftsmanship that makes it just fit for your body. That's, you know, that's the best of both worlds. I, I want to get to the point in the story where you first start thinking about starting your own shoe company. That seems like a big consequential decision what was motivating that decision at the time? You know, I think the idea honestly first came into my mind when I started working at Rockport. So this is like 30 something years before I did it. And the guy that owned Rockport, Rockport was a privately held company. This is before it was eventually purchased by Reebok, uh, which was then purchased by Adidas. So, you know, just the big fish keeps eating the smaller fish. But the uh, the guy that owned it at the time, a gentleman named Bruce Cates, was really a, a fascinating and interesting guy. He was only in his like mid-30s at the time. And it occurred to me that, you know, this is something you could do. You know, you could, you could if you had an idea or a thought, you could start a company like this. I don't think I'd ever really thought about it like that before, that I could start a a company or a shoe company. It wasn't something that entered my consciousness. Now, at the time, I didn't know anything. So, (laughs) you know, I had to learn everything. I mean, I, I had so much to learn. 
I was lucky. I just tried to put myself in a position to keep gathering knowledge and information, not only about how shoes are made, how they're marketed, how you manage inventory, you know, what what to look for when you're selecting a factory or a partner, all, you know, everything you can imagine. So it was then, you know, always kind of in the back of my mind that someday I might do this, but it was really taking 30 plus years of information and experiences before I felt, you know, I was in a position to be able to do it. Okay. Well, that I have to confess, I thought maybe this was going to be like, well, you know, it was 2011, late 2011 and something happened. <laughs> and I was finally like, you know, I think I'm going to jump in here. That's, uh, that's not quite the story. You, you spent 30 years letting this simmer. I mean, I think there always is a catalyst at the end. There has to be something. And, and, you know, we are kind of jumping ahead in the story and it was probably around 2010 or 11. And we were having a lot of success with Vibram Five Fingers. I was president of Vibram USA at the time, and we had this business making sole platforms for a lot of different companies, but we had another business where we made a finished product, which was the Vibram Five Fingers. And and that was a great experience. And I kind of got to the part where I couldn't I couldn't do anything else. Uh, the you know, to make shoes in the company would have been putting us in competition with the customers that we made sole platforms for. So that didn't seem right. And so I kind of, you know, I, I, I guess I got to a stage where I almost had to make a decision. Either I was going to stay at Vibram or I was going to start a new company. And, and that's what I did. I, there was a little time in between, you know, where I kind of thought about it after I left Vibram and before I started Topo and thought about what I wanted to make and, and and how it would be, you know, what kind of a company, not just a brand and a product, but what kind of a company would be would be the values of the company? Because I also knew that that was just as important as the product that we would make. Uh, you know, we had to set enduring values that that we believed in, and then hire the right kind of people that shared those values, and and that's how you make a, a strong company. So you're at Vibram, and you know. Born to Run comes out, sets off this massive wave of interest in the Vibram Five Fingers. And I'm just curious to get your perspective as you were in the middle of this or seeing this kind of happening. Um, what was your take on this? So, um, so you got to kind of go back to the beginning. So we started Vibram USA, um, which was a, really a subsidiary company of the parent company in Italy. Um, Vibram is an amazing company, a really uh, thoughtful, great resources, tremendous tradition, uh, high quality products. You know, I always felt like the brand was worth more than just the sole on a shoe. I always felt like it, it could, the brand could be extended in other ways that people trusted it and believed in it and that the people in the company had a sensitivity and consciousness to make things right. And so, you know, we were always thinking about what would be this um, product extension. You know, we would have ideas and suggestions and meetings about it. And the owner of the company actually um, was 
as a side project, working on a small group of shoes. And as a part of that, he went to a design school where he was introduced to a student there who his senior thesis project was the original prototype of the Five Fingers. And he essentially made a deal to, to buy the rights to the concept and, and um, offer the person a job and help industrialize it. I had come out of this, you know, longer experience in finished products, we used to call it. And so, you know, together we we collaborated to develop this concept and turn it into a real business. I had an affinity for um, natural movement already anyway, because I was trying to overcome some injuries and I was, this is before anybody was ever talking about training barefoot. I was working out in my gym, trying to do a barefoot and, you know, they didn't want me to be barefoot in the gym. So I thought selfishly, you know, oh, well, you know, this five fingers product is pretty close to being barefoot. I'll just start using this in the gym and they can't say, you know, you have to have shoes on. So, so that's kind of how it started and how the idea started. And, and then, um, kind of on a whim one day, I decided to just take them out on a short run. You know, I was, I was, had finished my workout in the gym and I was going to do like a three mile run. And rather than change into running shoes, I just decided to run in the five fingers. And what I noticed was it forced me immediately to change my form. You know, I, I couldn't land on my heel. There was, you know, no cushioning in those shoes. So I had to land more up on the ball of my foot, engage the muscles in the medial arch and below the calf. And and those muscles also being engaged forced a more upright posture, a shorter stride. And, you know, I began to think about, wow, my knee didn't hurt, you know, in this process, I was going to do this little three mile run. And because it felt so good that first time I ended up running seven miles. Hmm. Well, the next day I could barely walk. <laughs> okay. I, you know, I mean, I probably look like I ran a marathon because, you know, the bottoms of my feet were sore. The muscles, the soleus muscle below the calf was really sore. Yeah. You know, I was tight You know, my Achilles hadn't been used like that. And so I thought, wow, you know, there's something here but, you know, we're really going to have to caution people. You know, it, as you heard me say before, this is like an arrow in the quiver. So I've kind of viewed Vibram Five Fingers from the beginning kind of as a training shoe, not a shoe necessarily you'd run marathons in or that you would do all these, um, you know, extreme things. But it was an arrow in the quiver because what I knew is that it was helping me to strengthen my body. It was a tool to make the muscles in my feet stronger um, to help me to run with more consciousness about my form. And there were a lot of these, you know, other benefits to wearing the product. It wasn't that I would necessarily be the only product I would run in. And in fact, I've always loved to run in, you know, different shoes, kind of mixing platforms and, and just depending on the workout or the, how I feel that day, you know, trying, trying something different. So that's kind of how the concept got started. There was a gentleman we gave shoes to who ended up going to Mexico to run in the race in the Copper Canyon. And Chris McDougal, who's the author of Born to Run, was down there writing an article for, I think, Men's Health at the time. And he saw this gentleman wearing the shoes and started asking him all about it. And so then Chris, uh, 
called me uh, when he got back and back to the U.S. And we had multiple conversations about Vibram Five Fingers. And as anybody who's read the book would know, a lot about the Leadville Trail 100. And that's a big part of the book. And during the 90s, I was involved with and associated with the Leadville Trail 100. So all these things kind of all tied together. And the book, so we've been toiling away on Vibram Five Fingers for three years hmm. and, you know, had this little <laughs> tiny business. And the book got published, of course, and it became, you know, within two years, it was kind of a phenomenon. And we had this explosive growth cycle. Um, and through that, to me, it was always intended to be kind of an arrow in the quiver, as I said, a tool, you know, just like sometimes you want to have a shoe that enables you to feel more, to feel the ground and feel your surroundings. But there might be other times where you want to have a little more protection or cushioning. And so it was, it was um, you know, just an arrow in the quiver and there should be a few arrows. But a lot of people, you know, that became their thing and the whole minimalism craze was born. And I think probably it got carried away, you know, it went a little too far and got carried away. And this is one of the things I was so interested in talking with you about is I think just one of the biggest problems, right, was nobody was talking about these, or at least not loud enough, I guess, in terms of the way you've just been describing this as this can be a really great tool in your quiver. Mm -hmm. An arrow in the quiver, yeah. It, it, we developed this sort of religious fervor of like, you're on the right side of truth or the wrong side, you know? And it seemed like yeah. at least at, at, I don't know, the popular level or even in running media or something, it was sort of like, are you team barefoot or not? And your answer oh, to that so question true. was yeah. going to make you friends or enemies, right? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the truth is, I mean, I still believe to this day, I can see a pair of five fingers from where I'm sitting here in my house. I have um, have like an office gym area here, and there's a pair over there that I still use for lifting all the time. And I still believe minimalist shoe ha has a place in your assortment, you know, and, and, you know, I know there are a lot of fans of Hoka. I knew the Hoka guys when they were struggling to open a store in the U.S., and it's been remarkable to watch their growth and success, you know, but to me, that was a similar thing. You know, it was, again, an arrow in the quiver. It wasn't necessarily a, the panacea for everything and for everybody, but it was a tool that could improve the experience or make the experience better. And for a lot of people who maybe were having a hard time running or, you know, suffering impact injuries, maybe that was the right thing. But to me, it's always, you know, there's a middle ground where you, you, that's kind of the sweet spot where some days you want to use something with maybe a little more cushioning, a little more stack height, a little more protection. Other days, maybe you want a little more feel. Maybe you like uh, a little less uh, shoe on your foot. And one last thing on that too, Jonathan, I think where people got carried away is because of that, when it becomes your only, your only shoe, you know, and you, and people rushed into it. They weren't ready to say, well, you know what, I'm just going to use this two days a week on my easy days until my body starts to adjust and adapt. And because you're going from, you know, 
25 millimeters of stack height or, you know, 15 millimeter heel to toe drop to now something very thin, zero drop, you're putting your body in under all kinds of stress. And I don't think people weren't prepared to, you know, give their body time to adapt and adjust to this and use it as, as a tool that could help them to become stronger for, you know, all of their other running or activities. For sure. Um, <laughs> while all of this was going on, I was actually a personal trainer at the time. And, you know, as a trainer, the thing that I was, <laughs> let's say rather dictatorial about maybe, um, was just kind of flawless technique. And I kind of, I keep thinking about as you're talking, like one of the things I would love to have certain clients do is like wide grip pull-ups. And most of the people I trained were unable to do one wide grip pull-up with perfect technique when we first started doing them, right? And so we would talk about that. Like, you're literally going to move a couple inches, but you're not going to make any part of this movement with, you know, where you sort of break technique. And um, it was interesting to think about how long of a process, and, and over time, they would build up that strength. It just seems to me, when I was watching the whole, the whole five fingers movement kind of explode, um, again, I'm, I, I, I'm sure it's incorrect that there, were, there was no one out there kind of you know, crying in the wilderness saying, people, take your time. This has to be trained up and into but it sure didn't seem like that was being communicated, you know, on a kind of popular level. And it would have been the equivalent of people attempting to do wide grip pull-ups that they definitely were not strong enough and were not ready to be doing. So just kind of flailing around and then weird getting injured. Yeah. And I bear some responsibility in that too. I think we could have probably done a better job at that time communicating to people. I mean, we did do a lot of things that we probably don't get credit for, which is, um, you know, we had a, a, a hang tag on every product we produced that explained that you should, you know, listen to your body, you know, don't go beyond your limits. We explained some of the physiological things that you might experience and that you should listen to your body and back off because, you know, this is like mountain biking. We always say, don't do something, you know, it's always that there's that boundary, you know, you want to do that drop or you want to do that jump or that, but at the end of the day, you also want to still be able to ride tomorrow. So, you know, we always have that kind of, you know, push pull, you, you're, you, you want to challenge yourself to get better, but at the same time, you want to be able to be healthy to experience it again tomorrow. And, and I think five fingers was a little bit like that too. So we probably, could have done more to put that into context for people. But honestly, it got way beyond us. You know, it just, and with the book and with the minim minimalism trend. And that's why, you know, it was so important to start Topo for me because I, I wanted to still deliver some shoes that are, have a, you know, low drop or a zero drop, you know, because we do both. It doesn't have to be zero, but we make some shoes that are zero drop. And sometimes when you say zero drop, people think that means minimal, which is not necessarily the same. We make, you know, zero drop more minimal shoes and we make zero drop more cushion shoes. We also make some shoes that have up to five millimeters of heel to toe drop. While I might like a 
uh, zero drop shoe. I realize a lot of people who transition to that, who are trying to get to a more natural gait, might get injured or have trouble. So we make shoes with a five millimeter heel to toe drop and a three millimeter heel to toe drop. So you can make that transition. So I think we learned a lot through that Vibram experience. We learned a lot about, um, you know, just like your knowledge continues to build, you know, on all of these different things. Even since starting Topo, there were a lot of things we did in the beginning that I wouldn't do today. But, you know, it's a process. You learn, you get better, you improve. Um, And, you know, I'm happy where we are today. And I'm excited, you know, where the future might take us. I love that part, you know, where you're talking about, we want to provide products that allow people to transition. I think that is so important. And I tend to think of running and runners as like, we're all kind of operating on a bit of a spectrum here. And on the one hand, you've already, we've already used the analogy of the quiver, right? Like different arrows in the quiver, different training tools. But, you know, there's also that point where a less experienced runner might need a different product than the product they might need a year from now. Or if I start doing a lot more road work or if my trail runs start getting four to five times as long. It's like we need to be a little better, I think, a little more flexible and more responsive to like, where are we today? Where are we headed? How do we get there safely and you know in a healthy way and so it's it's good to hear the the head guy of a company thinking through that as well and 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 trying to offer some different products that would allow people to transition yeah i think i I agree with that completely so where you might be a year from now and the products that you might need or might serve you best might be very different um and i think that sometimes we think that the product is I don't even think the product, and this is, you know, coming from a shoe guy, I don't think the product is the most important thing. I think there are shoes that can mess you up and you can, you know, hurt yourself or if used, you know, not picking the right shoe or using a shoe improperly, it might, it might make, make, you know, create a problem. But I think people paying attention to their bodies is the most important. You know, are you doing the things that that give you balance, that give you strength, that improve range of motion and paying attention to that. You know, I always was that runner who would spend an extra 10 minutes running and, you know, didn't have time to work on mobility or, you know, back then we just called it stretching, but (laughs) I didn't do as much, uh, you know, strength training much less strength training that is trying to, you know, deliver the same strength and range of motion on both sides of my body. And so those are the things that I think as athletes, if, you know, the more we pay attention to that, um, you know, that's, those are the things that are going to keep us healthy. And, and it's not just the shoes job to keep you out there. It's the athletes got some responsibility in this too, to strength train, cross train, you know, train for mobility and range of motion. Do you think, or or where do you think we are now seeing major points of agreement, maybe across the board among shoe manufacturers? To give you an example here, in the ski industry, every ski company is 
making some amount of use of either tip and or tail rocker on a ski. Like there is literally not a company in existence that is out there like we think, you know, adding tip rocker or tail rocker to a ski is ruining skis and hurting, you know, the sport of skiing. On the on the mountain bike side, we are not currently seeing radical disagreements when it comes to like the geometry of say um, trail mountain bikes. So let's start here. Where do you see the points or are there points where you think, yeah, we're not seeing like significant disagreement among shoe manufacturers when it comes to at least, you know, one, these one, two or three points. Yeah. So I think that the one people would recognize first, of course, is lightweight. And this probably did come out of the minimalist movement was there was a much greater awareness of making shoes lightweight. And I'd say back in the 90s, there were a lot of plastic parts on shoes, big heel counters, external heel counters, you know, motion control devices, all this stuff that we were building and bolting onto our shoes um, and essentially casting our feet. So again, I'm a big believer in doing things that allow the foot to engage and move and work in a more natural way. But I think that one of the big benefits that came out of that movement was, you know, a lot of people got more conscious about making shoes lightweight. And, um, and so that's probably the biggest universal thing that you'll see. And there's a lot of focus on it, as there should be. And I'll go back to the bike metaphor again, though. So, you know, at a certain point, there's probably a level of diminishing return if the fit and some of the other characteristics in the user experience or the feel of the shoe don't deliver. So even if you have the lightest shoe, you know, just like in a bike, you might have the lightest bike, but if it doesn't fit you properly, if it doesn't fit the way you ride or or the way you uh, choose to train, then, you know, it's probably not the best fit for you. So I think that, you know, it's great that all shoes have gotten lighter. That's definitely a benefit. Um, but I think there's still some work to do to improve um, the fit experience as a part of that so that you feel nimble and fast and can use your body in a natural way. When it comes to fit, then, it sounds like you're saying, yeah, we're definitely not all on the same page in that when it comes to the particular and complex issue of fit we're going to i take it you would say we're going to see a lot of different opinions on that front right and i would say the other thing is that's that's a very personal experience so you know i've seen <laughs> more feet in my life than um you know most people <laughs> probably because of the you know putting five fingers on people and there there are so many different shapes of feet and our our shape, you know, we are designed more for, um, I would say our shoes are not going to be the ideal fit for a really slim foot. So if you're a slim foot, uh, super slim in the forefoot, especially probably Topo is not the best shoe for you. If you're somebody who has a little wider foot or really wants to have a little more room in the forefoot, Topo will definitely deliver on that experience. We're not the widest or in the forefoot, but 
we definitely have a little more generous feel up there. So if you're somebody who has a little more girth or just likes that sensation, you know, that's probably an important an important characteristic in our shoes. So with respect to fit then, how much variation do you guys go across the line in terms of last width between a narrower or wider last? Yeah, so the way we design our shoes to fit is I want them to fit generously in the forefoot so you have lots of room for your toes to move, room for the so you don't feel pressure on the uh, you know, on the sides of your foot where your toes splay. Um, but I also want the shoe to fit snug through the waist and in the heel. I want you to feel nimble. I want you to feel agile. So using your toes for balance, agility, a sense of control, but at the same time, having the shoe feel very connected to your body through the waist and in the heel. I think there are there are plenty of wide shoes out there. You know, if you just wanted a wide shoe, you could buy a wide from New Balance yeah. or even extra wides. But and there are people that that's their foot shape. They need that, and thank goodness there's a company like New Balance that makes that for them. But for a lot of people who are probably more of a medium width or a slightly fuller width, we try to deliver a fit experience to them where they feel like, wow, I've got room for my toes to spread and splay. This feels really comfortable. And by the way, if I'm on a long run and my foot starts to swell, there's still ample room up in that toe box. I'm not going to blister as easily or, or cramp. And at the same time, I feel snug in the waist, so I don't feel that kind of sloppy sensation that I might if I bought a wide width shoe. The shoe feels very connected to my body. I feel secure. I feel fast. I feel nimble. I feel agile. That's the sensation. You know, then when you get that kind of perfect combination, that's what you're, that's really where you get excited and where you feel like now I, you know, I feel like I can really go. I can really move. I can really run. Going back just for a second to the, the, the issue of where there is sort of widespread agreement, say among manufacturers, you already pointed out correctly, wait, we're all trying to get into lighter shoes. Anything, you have a second or third point on this? So there are a couple more things. I think that there's, people are much more receptive to lower drop shoes than, you know, years ago. Even a Hoka, you know, uh, one of the great things about a lot of Hokas is they're actually relatively low drop. I don't think they have any shoes of traditional drops that are, you know, in the 10, 12, 15 millimeter heel to toe drop range. You know, that, and so I think that's much more widely accepted. Um, Ultra, of course, is another brand that, you know, is famous for zero drop shoes. But even, you know, brands like Nike, um, which, you know, maybe a couple people have heard of, uh, <laughs> but brands like that, you know, even they now make a lot of low drop alternatives for people. I, so I think there's, you know, again, another thing that came out of that, that natural running movement was that not only did people want lightweight shoes, they wanted shoes that put them into a more natural gait. Um, and low drop is, a, is another key ingredient in that. There's probably some other trade-offs in there too, you know, where I think you don't see in the industry this idea of trying to create shoes that there used to be a category people would call motion control. And you don't really see a lot of shoes in that category anymore. I don't really know of any per se today that are, uh, if they are out there, they're not very, very, very meaningful in the industry. And so 
I think the other thing is that neutral shoes or shoes that allow the body to move and work a little more naturally are much more prominent than they would have been, say, 10 or 15 years ago. I think that's also a good thing. So I, I think the industry is doing a better job of making people aware that, you know, you want to do things that strengthen your body, that you don't just cast the foot purely in this motion control shoe that doesn't allow any pronation, and that's how we're going to fix the body. You have to treat the problem. So if you do have a problem there where you have excessive pronation that may lead to knee pain or other issues, rather than just trying to cast the foot a certain way, let's look at what you can do as a part of your training to help correct or improve that, that, that struggle or that problem that you're dealing with. And it may mean some exercises apart from running. You know, it's probably going to be, you know, initially body weight exercises, but, you know, probably some other things there that can uh, help make you a stronger, better runner. So let's talk a bit more about Topo Athletic. How do you think about what differentiates Topo Athletic among some of the other companies and some of the other choices out there? Yeah, so I think, you know, some of the things or the ways that we try to differentiate ourselves, obviously, I've already described our fit. And I think that's an experience a lot of people play back to us. They, they tell us they experience that sensation. I think the build quality um, that you get in a pair of Topo Athletics for the price you pay is something that we also hear played back to us quite often, you know, that our shoes tend to last, that there's a, a build quality and a craftsmanship that goes into Topo, it can be a lot of things. It's not just the construction, it's, you know, the material selection, but it's how all of those things kind of come together. Um, We try to keep a certain simplicity in our shoes. So sometimes we're accused of, you know, because running shoes very often are judged on, you know, how much glitz and pop there is. And in our case, you know, I wanted to deliver a certain simplicity in everything that we make so that it's really functional footwear that you can rely on. And at the end of the day, it's not necessarily about a a specific technology or a foam type or some pop color or something like that. I just wanted that good reliability in how the shoe functions and works. Um, So I think that's you know, probably something that that also sets us apart. We use a lot of premium branded components. Not everybody, you know, uses, I think we use Vibram soles on um, all of our trail shoes, except for one. Uh, We use different compounds of Vibram. Having been the CEO at Vibram for 11 years, obviously we have great relationships with the company and the people there. I have a lot of respect for them, but I think that our team knows how to make great souls working in partnership or collaboration with them. So when you buy our trail shoes, you know, you're getting, you're getting a lot there because there's a lot of years of experience that went into the creation of, of those products. Um, so having, you know, premium branded componentry, whether it's again, souls like that, or it could be in the uh, ortholite foam footbeds that we use in virtually all of our shoes now, which have a certain resilience and don't pack and they're antimicrobial. So they, you know, don't smell, uh, over time and they fight bacteria. Um, you know, those are also important ingredients that we, 
that we put in there. Um, and it just depends on the particular shoe, you know, beyond that, there are unique ingredients to each one, um, whether maybe it's a waterproof shoe or we have a shoe that has a PBAX plate that runs through the midsole between two different layers of foam that we think delivers a little more forefoot stability as you uh, toe off in the flexion process. And so, you know, we try to not make too many shoes, but try and really focus on delivering the best shoe we can for that particular experience we have in mind for the shoe. So it's a, it's a fairly tight line, but every shoe in the line has a purpose. You started Topo Athletic in 2013. Is that correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. You've already spoken really well about this pretty extensive history of yours in running and working in the run in the shoe industry. So I guess I'm curious about, uh, between 2013 and let's say today, given your background, has Topo Athletic actually rolled out? I mean, it's always hard, I think, starting anything, but has this process and the growth of the company sort of gone more or less as you expected it would? Or has it been a wilder ride than, say, all of that? No, I think it's been <laughs> probably more the latter. <laughs> um, you know, I we made, you know, for somebody who had 30 years of experience when he started the company, you wouldn't think I'd make some of the mistakes I did. But I, I you know, you still make mistakes and you learn and you try to correct. And and um, so it's it's been an evolution. I think the last three or four years, we really have kind of, not to make a pun, but we found our stride. You know, we, we have a good feel for what the values of the company are. We understand what somebody's expectations are when they when they uh, buy the brand, I think we deliver better shoes today than we ever have. And I'm really proud of the, you know, the, the whole product line. Naturally, you know, I have certain shoes that are favorites or ones that I use more regularly, but, um, but it's definitely been a journey to get here. It, it's, it's hard. Anybody who starts a company, I have a lot of respect for hmm. and probably more respect now because you realize it's it's just a challenging, challenging thing, and you can't do it alone. You know, there's so many people that help and are amazing at what they do that make our company great. There's so many parts of the company that I don't even know how they work. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you hire good people, and those people, you, you know, you try to give them the responsibility and the um, – the tools that they need to, to be successful in their job. And it's, you know, they, they just flourish. Let's talk a little bit about your own running these days. Then I want to hear about what one or two pairs of shoes you are currently spending the most time in. Yeah. So I, um, you know, as somebody who ran, for a long time. And after college, I probably ran four or five years where I averaged, uh, I think, 110 to 120 miles a week. Um, you know, so I was pretty hardcore. I, I was not a world-class runner. I was a good, you know, New England runner and, you know, won a fair amount of races around here, but I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't ever going to be the next 
Bill Rogers or Alberto Salazar or one of those guys. And, you know, that's why I ended up focusing a lot on, on my career um, at, that, at a certain point. But, uh, but today, you know, I mean, I've, I've been a runner. I've been running since the mid seventies today. I probably run three days a week. Um, and it just depends on how I feel. There are some days and there might be some weeks, you know, vacation weeks. I'm probably guilty of running even more. Um, but I, I try to mix up. There's also a lot of things I really like to do. I love to mountain bike. I love to ski. I like to cross country ski also. Um, and, you know, I spend a little bit of time in the gym trying to work on my body just to be able to continue to do all of those sports. It's not about trying to lose weight or, you know, it's as you age, you just want to be able to continue to do the things you love. And so that's really the purpose of, of you know, getting into the gym three days a week or four days a week. And then, um, and that seems to be the right balance for me. So for me at my age, you know, that's the right balance given how many years I've run, how much I've been doing it. I, I love running on trails. Um, so that's more interesting and fun for me. I have to travel a lot for my job. So there are also times when, you know, you just have to run roads and that's fine too. But if I have my choice, I'd rather be out on the trails. Um, we have some great products for both road and trail, just depending on what your experience is or what you want to do. Um, but probably my favorite trail shoe, the other part of your question there, uh, would probably be today is the Mountain Racer um, that has a Mega Grip Vibram outsole, a three-piece injected EVA midsole. It's got a ripstop mesh in the upper. It's ported in the upper so that if you get water inside, the water drains out. It's very light, ortholite foam footbed. It has this really kind of innovative gator attachment. So we make a special gator for that, a performance gator that you can use if you want to keep out dirt and debris. And I love it just because it's light, it's sticky, it's, it's fast. Um, it's a great all-purpose trail shoe. It fits probably a little more snug than some of our other trail shoes because it's built more for performance. and so. Uh, if I'm just out for a comfort trail run, maybe the ultra venture, or actually, you know, I like the, I, this is where I start to mix up platforms a little bit too. I probably would go with our new run venture three, which again, uses the same outsole, but now I've, you know, taken some stack height out of the shoes, single density, a little simpler. Um, you know, that's a really nice, light, nimble, fast, um, trail shoe to use as well. Uh, on the road, I'm especially partial to our new Zephyr. The Zephyr is a shoe that um, we launched back in November. It's um, It's got a platform story. You know, we don't always have these more elaborate platforms, but this one has a shaped PBAX plate that runs through two different foams in the midsole. And the all of that is just a bunch of gibberish to most people. So really what it does is it delivers this nice stability and pop um, that is just a, a nice kind of quick snappy sensation when you're running. It's not a stiff shoe like some of the new carbon plate shoes that, are, that have come out, but what it does is it brings, it keeps softness still under the foot, but it's almost like the sensation of bringing the ground a little closer, but without any of the 
the pain associated with that for some people. So I like the Zephyr. That's um, that's probably one of my favorites. I also like the Magnafly 3, which is a zero drop shoe. So you can see I'm constantly mixing because the Zephyr is a five millimeter drop. Magnafly 3 is a zero drop. So I kind of go back and forth between you know, drops and, and stack heights. I like, um, I like the Magnafly 3 a lot uh, for probably longer runs, um, which for me today, a longer run is probably eight or 10 miles. But still, you know, I, I like that sensation for, uh, for that kind of a run. Um, so those are, those are some of my favorites. We have two new products coming that I'm super excited about. We have our first uh, trail boots coming. Uh, next month, actually, we'll launch a shoe called the Trail Venture. It's a little bit like the uh, Mountain Racer that uh, I described, or you can check out on our website, but taken up above the ankle. So you now support the ankle a little bit more. So if you're in really, you know, more tricky terrain, or if you're bearing weight, you might want to look into something like that. It's still super light, so it's a speed hiker, um, and that'll be available at REI as well as some other stores and on our website. And then the one that people seem to be most excited about is a new shoe that will launch in a couple months called the Ultrafly 3. And so this will be the third generation of Ultrafly for us, which, you know, it, this time it gets a complete remake. So Whatever you see when you look at Ultrafly 2, Ultrafly 3 is a pretty radical departure from that. So I hope people will check it out when it comes. But it's a it's a five millimeter drop, um, just a nice, light, modest trainer for anybody who needs a little bit of light guidance is what we say. Virtually all of our shoes are neutral, but there are some shoes where we may do some things that not necessarily provide pronation control, but provide some guidance through the gait cycle. And this shoe does that. Yeah, you kind of answered my next question, which is uh, what might we be seeing coming out uh, down the line? Yeah, and we try to do, you know, we try to update shoes about every two years. It's kind of, I know some people do it a little more frequently than that. I was always frustrated when you have a shoe that you really love and you know, you go back to the store and you find that it's been changed and now it's on a different last and it's, you know, not quite the same shoe and different materials. And so I'm sensitive to that. I, I try to, you know, not have the shoe stick around forever, but I try to make meaningful updates that deliver on the same user experience. So if I know somebody, you know, right now we're working on the updated version of the mountain racer that probably won't launch for another year or so year and a half even and so there's a lot that goes into the creation of new products you know understanding what it is people love about it what's missing from the experience what could you improve and really looking at all aspects you know not only the fit feel runability longevity of the product you know i want to deliver the best value I can. So how do you use as many premium components and materials in the shoe and not let the shoe prices, you know, get, get away from you? Um, you know, they're running shoes today that cost almost as much as my first car. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's, uh, I try to keep it, I try to still deliver a premium, you know, component experience, but do it in a way that, um, that people can appreciate the value that's there. So as your team is 
thinking about or looking at, you know, I, I actually really like this idea of like the two-year product cycle. As you guys are thinking, okay, where might we go next? And and I think too, the fact when you bring in materials and price, that actually would mean that there is always a need to be reevaluating what you're doing. Because sometimes I'm a little bit in the camp of like, look, this thing is dialed, leave a dialed product alone, right? And uh, I, I, I probably actually, for somebody who reviews new gear all the time, um, have a weirdly maybe conservative view of that. But um, when you start looking into like cost and what new materials are out there and the like, it, it's that in itself is an argument for like, this is why we can never just sit back and keep putting out the same thing every year. But I'm, I'm curious, when you're looking at revamping or revising a shoe, how much of this comes from Topo Athletics' internal team versus how much of this comes in from user feedback and response. And you're not allowed to say, well, it's both, right? So if, if you're tempted to say that, you're going to have to give me something of maybe a percentage of this. But if there is such a thing as kind of a generalization, like typically, you know, it's 80% this, 20% that, how, how would you break that down? So I would say the first thing is we're a smaller team. So we're um, a smaller company than a lot of our competitors, uh, a smaller team of people, which makes us very nimble. And it, there isn't a whole lot of hierarchy in the company. And so that puts us really close to the consumer and close to the athletes that we work with. And of course, you know, you're looking at feedback from everywhere, but I would say also, you know, virtually everybody on the product team is also a runner of some sort or another, you know, you're maybe you're a, um, more of a road marathon guy, or maybe you're more of a trail runner like myself. Um, so, you know, I think we're all prejudiced probably a little more by our own experiences. It helps all through the process to read the reviews I always tell people to give us, don't, don't feel like you have to sugarcoat it. Give us honest feedback. It's the only way we'll get better. And there's plenty of critique out there. And we don't take down reviews off of our site if it's a bad review or something like that, because we feel like that's the you know legitimate experience somebody had. You know, we need to address the problem if it's a problem. And so it's all meaningful, but I, I guess if you're asking for you know, where we weighed it, it probably at the end of the day is going to be a little more weighted by, you know, two or three of us on the team that it's our personal experience with the product. Mm -hmm. So what's the best question that I haven't asked you? Hmm. That's a good question. I don't know if I've ever had that before. <laughs> so, you know, maybe the, the question, because, you know, as a, uh, somebody who enjoys competition and challenges and as an athlete, I probably would think about what would be your definition of success or how do you, um, you know, how do you evaluate whether or not you've done a good job or you're doing a good job. And so for me, if someone were to ask me, you know, you've been at this for a few years now, how would you define success? The best thing about, doing this work is 
the experience I get to have with um, the people that I work with. And the people that I work with and watching them grow and develop and take on these challenges and their contributions to the company are really meaningful. You know, when you have a company and you're the owner, a lot of times you're, you end up being the spokesperson for the brand or people think you are the brand or, and there's all these other people that have such meaningful contributions. And it's so cool to watch them grow and develop and, you know, put their own mark on the company and help shape the company, shape it in the values that you tried to help set and you believe in and you agree with. Um, you know, oftentimes with companies, I think we, you know, we think of it as this amorphous thing and it's really a group of people and we're still small enough that it's a group of people where we all know each other. We all work together, you know, pretty closely, even in this current work from home situation, we're on blue jeans, you know, uh, video conferencing every day and, you know, constantly staying in communication. But I think for me, you know, how I would define whether we're doing a good job is if long after I'm finished working in the company, if the company still has these values that, um, that have kind of set themselves around delivering the best fit, feel experience for the activity and that these people are passionate about, um, about doing that for, for their customers. I think that would be, that would be success. Well, Tony, um, I really appreciate the time. This has been a fun conversation and, and talking about where Topo Athletic is today and where you guys have been and where you came from. Um, I think we've covered a lot of ground here and uh, I've really enjoyed it. So thank you for the good conversation. Oh, thanks, Jonathan. I enjoyed it too. And, and uh, next time we will have to talk about skiing a little bit more, <laughs> maybe best places to mountain bike or, you know, some other stuff too. So, uh, but I appreciate uh, the opportunity to, to speak with you. So thanks for inviting me on. All right. Well, look forward to doing it again at some point down the line. And uh, for now, take good care. Thanks, Jonathan. You too. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Tony for the conversation. Thanks to Luke Alley for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd encourage you to subscribe to Off the Couch. Tell your friends about the show. Maybe even leave us a nice rating in iTunes. Until next time, please be safe. Please take good care of yourself and everyone else. Please keep moving forward. We will talk to you again next week.